Find Robert Marson and Cody Willard on Scudify.com and on the Scudify apps for iPhone and Android. Whoa, no, boo, we get a clue, yo, do I blew your mind from you, you to Soho, Cody Willard. This is Cody Underground, the podcast. I am Cody Willard, and today I have one of my biggest mentors and a really great friend and one a legend on Wall Street, really, Robert Marson. Robert, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for the introduction. I, I guess I am a legend in my own mind, Cody, so you got that right. <laughs> well, you're a legend in my mind, too, so that at least makes two of us. <laughs> we got two. <laughs> um, what is, Robert, get, give us a little background of why I call you a legend in my mind. I did the retail business. I went to the, from there directly to the institutional portfolio management, ran a uh, a fairly large, deep-value institutional product. I ran a hedge fund um, after that, and now I'm in a position of where I I just manage my own money, which is, I guess, the, one of the best positions you could be if you're really a, a stock jockey, where you you're, you have an investment management company with only one client yourself. So. That's that's exactly right. Um, and I mean, I'll just give a little more background. I've I remember reading interviews and profiles of Robert and Barron's 15, 20 years ago. I think it was the first place I started seeing his name. And, um, you know, from the street.com, a uh, long time writing and just, you know, being a all around big time stock picker with lots of great picks that I've been following over the years. So let's talk a little bit, Robert, uh, what are you looking at right now? Are you concerned about the markets, the economy, bubbles? Where are you? Well, uh, um, for the for the short term, I'm relatively hopeful that the market continue to uh, at least stay flat or grind ahead. I don't think valuation levels afford us another major level up. Uh, we're in a, a seasonal and cyclical period into June that historically has been very favorable to stocks. So I've been willing to give the bull side of my portfolio the benefit of the doubt. I'm running my own personal portfolio, which is a long short book, currently without sh- any short positions. And I call that I'm commando long. In my in my personal portfolio now. Well, at one point you, last year, I was yeah. fully hedged. Yeah, so, so how that you sort need of to change. Do you change that over a, a, a time frame measured in months? Could it, or I mean, even tomorrow, if things, if you decide you need to get, get a little more bearish, how how quickly do you adapt that type of exposure? Well, what I what I tend to do these days is I have a core long position. And when I'm trading bullish, I, I, I go commando without any hedges and try to make as most, much money as I can on the long side. But as I, as we get to levels where I think the market has, you know, has risk in it from the asset class, from equities as a, as a whole, I'll try to hedge out my, my long book with, um, with ETFs related to my longs or peers related to my longs or, Outright shorts that I believe are just simply too overpriced, just standalone shorts. And uh, last year, from uh, the summer into the fall, I actually, you know, made a made a, uh, a decent profit on my shorts. It, it contributed to my total return last year, being very, very positive. 
and I wouldn't be surprised if this year the same were true. I I tend to find a reason to be fully invested every year, and once a year for a period of two, three, four months, I I tend to find a reason to be cautious enough to be partially or fully hedged. Do you um, ever hedge with just puts, maybe in the, the in the actual name that you know your long position that you've owned and you like? If you're concerned uh, about the markets, or yeah, you could. I've I've done that. I've even collared positions where I sell calls that are above the current stock price to pay for the puts or buy outright puts. Yeah, I I, I do that. Uh, when you do that, you um, you restart your basis. So it's 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 uh, for tax purposes. So you close out your position actually, and it's taxable then. So it's not it's not as innocent as uh, you know. With respect to Uncle Sam, I'm pretty sure I'm not a tax attorney, but I'm pretty sure once you do that, you you know you harvest the gain and reestablish a new basis when the put so, so that's just like selling. And <laughs> if you're selling, if you're not selling because you don't want to really sell, and you want to ride the stock longer, then you're really you know it's it's and you believe in the fundamentals of the company, and you don't want to worry about trying to get back in. I find it's easier to hedge with something I don't want to own. If I'm betting the market's going down, then to sell what I own to buy it back or to buy puts on it. Well, okay, in on a broader context, talking about portfolios and just sort of managing where this stuff goes, um, it's, especially since you're now managing your own money mostly, which is what most of my listeners are, you know, retail investors out there listening to this, that's what they do. And... Giving them some context of, can you give us some broad range, ballpark figures of what, how do you break it down between your allocations of, uh, to stocks, to bonds, to real estate, to, versus say your income and network potential? Just, can you sort of give us some broad context of, do you stay away from any one particular sector or are you especially heavy in another or something like that? Well, I, I could say I've, um, um, I've never bought a, a government bond or uh, any kinds of bonds, municipal bond. And for myself, I'm really a stock guy through and through. And I'd rather have cash when I'm, I want to be conservative. I've never done a corporate. Although I did buy uh, subprime RMBSs at the bottom of the cycle in 2010 and made many multiples. And just to clarify, you my, were, essentially you were making a bet on um, bonds that are that were securities related to and invested in the low end market. of the real estate mm-hmm. market. Exactly. And you did that at the bottom, frankly. And I yes. remember you doing that. And it's, it was a, a big home run. But in general, you don't like... I run- your assets from stocks to bonds right. or something like that when you get bearish, you stick to cash. Right now, at this stage of my career with where stock valuations are, I'm running a long portfolio that's you know, about 45% of my net worth and uh, a cash position that almost that, that about matches it. And then, you know, I have some other investments in some other areas that might be maybe it's a little less, maybe it's forty and forty and then twenty percent and in oil and gas and, and, and other investments like that, private equity. And are you including like your house? Like your your no, I'm, you know, I'm excluding I'm, I was ex- town, by the way, because Yeah, I, I was excluding a res I was places. excluding the residents. So, you okay. know, and I don't I don't have any investment in real estate. I'm not 
really. I have a I have a lovely house, and but but I only own one of them. I'm not a guy that has houses so, in L.A. and Miami and and you know right. New York or but Robert. You have, I've never been a real estate guy. You have invested in uh, my Scudify platform, um, and you're on there all the time. Shameless plug to just remind people. By the way, you guys go check out Scudify. You can talk to Robert directly on Scudify. We've got apps for Android and iPhone. You can find us at scudify.com. But Robert, I guess my the question I have about that is how much do you do you do much venture capital or is that just a tiny percentage in that what you were just sort of just, talking about just, with your allocation? Just a tiny. Just that's for fun. You know, my 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 dream deal, equity deal, is to find a bright idea and you know pay a small amount of money for ten percent of it, expecting to be diluted uh, many times over. And have it turn into a big business. I, I've just started this in the last few years, though. So all my, one of the all my investments are works works in progress, like Scudify. Well, and that's one of the things that I try to remember with Scudify is that, you know, uh, having 10% of a company or or 1% of a company that's worth a billion dollars is worth more than, uh, you know, 50% of a company that's worth 10 million or struggling. And that's okay. one of the things about startups in particular. Let's apply that though a little bit to uh, back to the markets and just in general. Give us a few names. What do you like? Who are you investing in with some of your long picks? Since you don't have any short picks for us today, right? Well, I'm, I suspect the next round of investments will be will be my short ideas over the next two, three, four months. But for the time being, I'm I'm still writing a um, a set of uh, I call it cheap growth stocks. Um, the the thing to think about the stock market, the message I want to deliver about the stock market today is that it's very expensive. Uh, safety is, exp- is expensive. Yield is expensive. Consistency is expensive. There's very little nominal growth in most companies, most blue chips, uh, low to mid-single-digit growth. Companies are trading at generally, you know, between 15 and 20 times earnings. Uh, with that little revenue growth they do have, they have record profit margins, so the profitability almost can't get any better by definition, and yet they're generating a ton of free cash flow because of that profitability, and they're buying back stock and paying dividends and buying other businesses, and all of that activity is making the stock market justifiably expensive. That's sort of the the, the operative phrase. So I I I think... I think you trade a justifiably expensive stock market by either waiting for there to be material declines or buying individual companies that have had vicious bear markets for reasons of a bad quarter that's temporary or a legal issue or something like that. So I am totally uninspired by 99.99% of the 10,000 publicly traded stocks out there with a market cap of greater than $100 million right now. As new money buys, as a new money buy. And you did mention, though, you might be doing some new money shorts. You might actually be scaling into some shorts here soon. Yeah, but but just a preview. Sure, but let me answer the the buy question first. So what I'm what I continue to hold on to is is some technology stocks that are still reasonable, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen times earnings with revenue growth of twenty twenty five percent. And that's the, the the ones I've talked about. I call them my Fab Three because uh, they're semiconductor related. So it's Silicon Motion and Cordovo, 
and Synaptics are three companies that... Let's throw those symbols, the stock symbols out there for people. Uh, S-Y-N-A is Synaptics, Silicon Motion is SIMO, S-I-M-O, and Corvo is is the merger of two RF companies last year called RF Micro Devices and TriQuint, and they became QRVO. So all of those stocks have had big runs, made me a ton of money in the last year, but still I, still, I still own them. They're still reasonably priced. A year yeah, ago, they were cheap. cheap. Like they've gone, I, they've I, gone I from own. cheap to fairly to reasonably priced, but they could get very expensive with their revenue growth story. So I think, and, you know, and, if, and if I had to be long, if I had to be in or out with a three-year horizon, uh, you know, and I got one shot to buy them back, I, I'd be in, meaning I would live through, I'd be willing to live through the expected downturn or next correction we have is material in these stocks because their growth stories are so powerful. But are they priced today and timed today to enter at a great entry point? And I would say no. Uh, so that's is a new name that went from 90 to 60 last year. While the stock market was going up 10%, and when it went from 90 to 60, I bought it, and I, I commented on that. Uh, on Scottify, so many people. Which one was that? Synaptics is that the one you're talking about? Synaptics, yeah, yeah. It hit In full 90. disclosure, I own Synaptics also uh, from about the 60s, uh, about the same time frame. I think right. I entered right. it where you did. I think coincidentally, I was doing work on it, and then I saw you had done it the day just about the same time I was about to do it, and that did help me uh, with my conviction level of actually pulling the trigger. Let me ask you this, Robert. When you've got three stocks like that, or any stocks like that in your portfolio that have run up big time over the last two or three years, and you know, you've got a double or a triple in some of them, do you scale them out? Do you take some partial profits, or are you waiting for an official exit? Is it a fundamental-based decision? Is it a technical-based decision? How much does you know, your outlook for the market play into it? Answer that on sort of a broad context, if you will. It's, it's based on an individual valuation basis. So I find that when my stocks get expensive, they they could be sold, even if they have a good growth story, because I bought them cheap. So they were they had they had the same fundamental story when I bought them at a 10 PE and 15 is not at the sell point but you know 17 or 20 or 22 is so I will scale out of them or trim them back when they get to be expensive based on their current fundamentals but and until when you say then, trim it back do you mean 10 percent or 20 percent or 5 percent I would I would give me I mean usually in the in the 10 to 20 percent. Okay. Ten to twenty percent each time I would cycle out of some. And it might be right. so, I, mean, I might I might cycle out of two or three times goes farther than I think and the stock goes farther than I think. I might sell some at sixty, some at sixty six, and some at seventy two, but each time it's ten, fifteen percent. So then I would be forty or fifty percent out. And at that point I would just say this is my you know, this is a core position and I'm not gonna give any more and if it pulls back and I can re enter with my training position, that's fine. And if it goes on to the moon from there I, I, I tend to wait until then and you know, see what happens. Why was I so so premature, if you will, and I'll hold on to it. But if it goes to twenty five times earnings and I sell some at twenty and some at twenty two and some at twenty five, if it goes to thirty, I just sell it. I'll just keep selling it every ten percent on the way up if it's being sold for overvaluation purposes. Now, Robert, you and I have had some great talks even on T V about uh 
the Federal Reserve, the political climate and the corporatism of, thereof in the United States and basically in the developed world today globally. Talk to us a little bit. How much does that, do you pay attention to the Federal Reserve moves on a, even on a near-term basis or just sort of in a general trend basis? Or do they, does the Federal Reserve, does the Republican-Democrat regime and their policies and changes therein factor into your analysis and how you're allocating your money and moving and buying or selling? Well, politics are, yeah, and political decisions are too hard to handicap in my mind. And today's politician is a class for especially worthless. So there's not much to handicap anyway, right? There's not a lot being accomplished in Washington, even proposed. So politics, I think you can leave out of it. Now, Fed policy or monetary fiscal policy, you know, you know, a monetary policy sort of fiscal policy is, is, is accomplishing nothing with politicians. So monetary policy is the only, you know, manner in which the government can try to, uh, to pr- accomplish some things to stimulate, stimulate the economy or do something to create, uh, you know, spur economic growth. And the Fed believes, you know, it sort of has this magic potion of being able to create asset bubbles with 0% interest rates and, and quantitative easing and that that sort of fixes issues. And in my opinion, it's sort of what it does is it, create, it elongates the business cycle which is a problem. It's not a solution. That then creates imbalances that become more out of whack than they would have been for the self-purging cycle of three or four or five years. They try to get the cycle to eight or ten years by using every trick in the book. And and at that point, financial assets are usually overinflated and they're overvalued because they're priced for a lack of volatility and they're priced off a lower discount rate. And then when, when then for whatever reason the 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 whole that whole game is over, that whole house of cards comes crashing down, the economic impact and the and the financial impact in the markets is much larger. So we've gone from having a, a normal modest recession every three or four years, every fifty four months, to trying in eighty two to ninety two to two thousand to two thousand eight, then the Fed really trying to extend the business cycle. And it's really causing a much higher volatility, much more uh, economic, real economic damage, and much more deeper, bigger bull markets and deeper bear markets. So, uh, so what you, do have, you have to do is you have? you have to you have to assume that they're going to that they're going to try to keep it going as long as possible each time they get it going, which means not to turn not to stay negative or to turn negative after two or three years, but then to realize once you get out. Because of overvaluation, it's a long way down to cheap again in the stock market. So the next bear market that's going to give me a chance to buy things at the same valuations that you were, you could have bought them in 10, 11, 12, and now be harvesting those. You didn't have to buy them in 08 or 09 if you were worried about the system and, and the, the collapse. You could have waited until things stabilized in the economy, improved a little, stock still had a long way to go from there because the Fed was supporting the bull market. So you, the, the, the idea is longer, longer, bigger bull markets than anybody expects and then bigger crashes than anybody anticipates with, with more negative fundamental um, impacts on the real economy. And so unfortunately, I, that's a shitty policy. <laughs> but unfortunately, Cody, you and I can call them out on it 
every day and twice on Sunday, and it doesn't matter. That's the policy that they've decided to pursue. It still happens. But so then, how do we navigate this environment? I mean, at some point, we—I I know in my life, I'm expecting more crashes. Not necessarily tomorrow, but there will be another major economic crisis. There's going to be currency war ramifications from all these games they're playing with trying to devalue currencies around the developing world. The the the, the Federal Reserve policies that you're just talking about, the endless corp, the endless push from the Republican-Democrat regime to expand corporate margins and corporate profits. Where does this end? Do we have to have a major reset? Do, how do we game it? How do we prepare for it? And Or should we? Um, I, I, I kind of thought the last one would have been the one that precipitated all the change, especially with a populist Democratic president. But if, if he didn't protect the providers of labor in society, i.e. the blue-collar worker, okay, and the middle class, who, who's going to, right? So I can't say how long the corporatism could, could keep sticking it, you know, or the owners of capital and corporates could stick it to the providers of labor. I don't know how long... That will continue. It feels to me like that should be running out of steam anytime soon. Uh, I think labor is going to wake up and, and demand to figure out well, that, that their share, well, that their share can't go down forever. Now, well, you well, know, that uh, catalyzed then the crash and the market reset. And are you going to? Is that the time you get to buy back when the Dow's below ten thousand again? I mean, you're going to get the crash when you know when whatever asset that gets most overvalued and is most levered up. You know, it, you know, breaks through a resistance level, and suddenly people realize that they they paid for, you know, a a resplendently attired emperor, but the emperor has no clothes, and that's the bond market to me, and that's interest rates, and it's going to take it's going to take a normalization of interest rates, or even a you know a a blowout through normaliz normalized interest rates to get people to back off the the aggressive equity valuations and the aggressive cap rates in real estate and the aggressive price in art and all that kind of stuff. Now, all right, so final the, question on this topic then, Robert, what is the, you just got through explaining, and I agree that the, we can't expect the Federal Reserve to turn hawkish and start raising interest rates. So then is it somehow a natural phenomenon in the marketplace that capital itself and investors away from the central banks are start seeking higher yield and eventually at some point there's not enough buying power outside of the central banks buying with their quantitative easing policies and 0% interest rate policies that rates have to go up naturally in the marketplace. Is that the catalyst for this? Uh, I would, well, I would think that the Fed is going to, they always bring rates back above where they kept them in, in the recession, right, or wherever they wherever they took them down in the recession, right. This time around, they've kept them a lot, you know, and you know, zero a lot longer to sustain the economy, but also because there's much more absolute debt being serviced, and the earlier they increase interest rates, the more of the of that income needs to be directed at debt service and less at consumption. So the Fed sees the balance sheet of the nation. And says, what would a two percent increase in mortgage rates, car loans, and credit card interest rates do to the economy? And they that 
you know, they have a they have a negative answer there. So they 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 need to be to do it slowly and to prepare the market for it. But they they've always in the past felt they needed to do it. So this time around, I can't tell you if um, uh, I think at the at the bottom, I predicted QE for a decade and and below normal interest rates forever, but not zero. So. How long could the game be played without the, uh, the financial system and society cracking? Look at Japan. It's been doing it for 20 years. We're only in year six. Well, if Japan's been doing it for 20 years, you know, the runway for to kick the can down the road for everybody involved, politicians, investors, rich, corporate CEOs, government, it's all a lot longer than six years since Japan's been able to do it for 20 years. So, uh, it's you know, will it I mean, could it come to an end tomorrow? Yes. Could it take five or ten more years? Yes. Therefore, every year, I think I'm going to make my money for this year in a good seasonal period. The stocks that fit my formula or that are down too cheap to be true with good fundamentals. And then every year, I'm going to hedge myself out thinking this one is going to be the big one. This is going to be the 2008 times two. And if if I'm wrong, I, I then cover the shorts. And go commando long again for the next seasonal trade. So that's I. I'm taking it as a year by year period where in each in each year I have a six to eight month period to make money and a two to four month period to be wary. And I think that's the best way. I'm not looking two or three years out when I buy a stock. I'm not buying anything that won't pay me in in three to five quarters. All so, right, give us your final. You. Walk away thoughts here, Roberto. What 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 do what's what do you want the listener at home to the Cody Underground podcast to walk away with before they come back on Scudify and ask you questions and talk to us personally on with Scuttles? Well, you you got to be a you're 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 involved in a long term conflict that is too big for you. To control, therefore you've got to invest. You got to gorilla invest. You got to you got to come in. You got to take your shots, harvest your winners, and get out and hedge yourself. So that's the the idea is that there's not going to be a, another five or ten year bull market from here, and and in that period there's going to be another vicious bear market. So you have to just basically treat everything. As though it were, you know, you're not getting married. Everything, everything is dating in here, and the buy and hold, this, despite what happened in the last six years, is not back in play. You don't have to day trade, but you have to hold positions that you want to, you want to profit by. In my opinion, every year. So every year, to, to say you want to be 100% long and 0% long every year is a mindset that a lot of people can't. You know, easily adopt, but I think that's that's what's required to make and keep profits in the stock market. Well, it's been a pleasure do, talking to you about all of this. I mean, it's, there's some you real go. meat in all of this today, and I really appreciate it. You go career, your gorilla stock picking, and you go commando long, and then you go fully edged. And fully edged is down in the bunker, totally with. No, no skin showing, and that every year you have to think about doing both of those things. However, you can figure out a way to to get yourself comfortable with. And the reason you have to do that is because the next bear market is going to be friggin' ugly, 
And you don't want to. You don't want to be. It's not going to be twelve percent or seventeen percent or when this thing goes. Robert, it's going to be thirty or forty or fifty percent again, like the last two were. You just got to miss those thirty to fifty percenters. So, is there some sense that the average guy at home should be somewhat in cash, waiting for that opportunity? Uh, Every year, the the average guy in cash should maybe maybe it's 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 it's. Not practical to expect him to go 100% long to to 0% long every year, but maybe he can go from, you know, 80. If he's doing cash stocks and bonds, he could clearly go from 70 or 80 to 50 or 60, right? Right. And that's and that way, when the the humdinger comes, he'll be able to, you know, to buy and to buy much much more cheaply. So if you stay in reasonably priced stocks and you never get caught in the really aggressive stuff. And they have decent stories, so you're not buying just cyclical companies with no secular growth. And you leave yourself some cash to buy more of what you like or more stocks that are like what you own in the, in that, uh, in, in, you know, a year or two and be whole in a year or two while the rest of the market, you know, is, is ravished, in my opinion. So. Awesome. Thank you so much, Robert. Robert Morrison, is anything you want to plug before I let you go? Besides Scudify? I'm good. I'm, right. I, I don't have anything to plug, my man. Scudify is is our is, is one of our ventures. That's as good as anything. If you want my individual stock picks in real time, buy and sell advice. And it's it's I do what I share with the world what I'm doing for the sake of documenting the trades that I do. But I don't have anything to sell. Or anything to promote on the website, and you can take your advice. You could, you could. I'm out there shit, telling people what I'm doing, but I expect them to do their own due diligence with every individual stock they buy, whether they get it from me, from you, or Jim Cramer, or anybody. Amen. So you can find all of that from Robert and me every day on Scudify. Robert Marson, thank you so much. That's Cody Underground, the podcast. I'm Cody Willard. Myself. Peace out until I'm next time. Thanks, Robert. You're welcome, Cody. Double high deep. I dig every ditch and then be good in the game like Joplin until I'm violated or quit. And I'll be living it up. You keep on living while you're giving it up. Did he did it, what he doing to his artists and about the way he living Take a hit, make a hit, keep a tunnel vision Sign a deal with the fans, go to music prison Who believe you a prophet when you enjoy your music Sells advertisements for profit Well, who knew, boo, ho, we get a clue Yo, do I blew your mind from QU to Soho Cody Willow, New Mexico, Lobo, Muddy Souls Get around like hobos, yeah, we be tearing it up And you gon' get it